What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, thank you so much for joining us. Look, I want to uh, start off with an announcement that's a little important. Uh, John and I have made the decision to limit the amount of episodes we release to one every other week. So for the longest time, we've been doing one a week, and we are now going to be moving to a one every other week or twice a month schedule, starting with this episode. We really appreciate you know all of your feedback. We'd love to hear how this affects you, how you like it, if you don't. But really... Uh, you know, we're just, we got busy and it's tough to keep up with weekly schedule. And we decided, you know, in order to keep this thing going, we had to simply limit the amount of new episodes. Hopefully it'll also allow us some time to, to refocus and continue to get great guests and increase quality and, and keep going. But we are going to be doing it every other week. So with that in mind, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out or forget to download because we have some incredible episodes in the hopper. All right, so every other week, let's move on now with our guest this week. We are talking to Tema Frank. Tema is the author of the book People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. You can find her on her website, which is frankonlinemarketing.com. And this is a really fun episode. We get to hear a lot about Tema and her background and learn about, you know, her business experience. She really understands the customer well, how customers, you know, can play a role in your organization, whether good or bad, depending on the way you treat them. She has the 3P profit formula, 
which we will talk about. Really interesting. And I was just excited to have somebody on to talk about, you know, in this new digital age, when customers have a different voice, uh, what does that mean? How do companies manage this? How can small businesses manage it? How can we use it to our advantage? How is it disrupting? And things like that. So we're going to hear from Tema on those issues and more. Again, her book is People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. All right, going to keep this short and turn it over to Tema here. Feel free to reach out to us. We are on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at SmartPeoplePodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner, and you will never miss anything new because that's where we send it out. All right, here we go. Hope you enjoy this episode with Tema Frank. Well, Tema, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. Really appreciate it. My pleasure to be here. So, of course, I, I want to you know spend a lot of this interview talking about your book, People Shock, especially uh, you know the the subtitle here, "The Path to Profits When Customers Rule." I think it's such a loaded, just <laughs> such a loaded title. Uh, but first, yeah. I always like to give a little background. So, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and uh, where you come from? Sure. Well, my background is actually quite varied. I can make it look like a logical flow on a resume, but but really I just followed cool opportunities. So um, I started my career in the banking industry and uh, worked in retail banking for a while. And that's really where I started to develop an awareness of the importance of customer service and also some of the genesis of the book People Shock, where I talk about the three P's being promise people and process. And that process one, which we can talk about later, is something I realized in the bank. It's that we hired fantastic frontline staff, but they weren't getting the support internally. And there's only so long they could keep saying I'm sorry and smiling before customers would get annoyed. So that kind of laid the groundwork for me thinking about what I ended up writing about in the book. Then uh, got laid off by the bank and went off with my new husband on a research leave in Europe and met a woman who had written a book about Euro business women, women, and particularly the best employers in Britain. And I thought, that's a cool idea. So I wrote a similar book for Canada. So I did a lot of uh, consulting and work after that in the human resources and career management side of things, which also, of course, ultimately ties into the book. It all looks like I planned this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then in, I started getting really interested in the internet and the potential of the internet. Put up my first website in 1995, and let me tell you, it was ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was up. <laughs> and um, then in 2001, I founded a company called Web Mystery Shoppers, which was really the, f- the first company that I, as far as I can tell in the world, that was doing what we would now call omni-channel customer service testing. So our focus was what the experience was on the website, but we would also call the call center. We would go into stores or branches and all these things. And we'd look to see, are we getting a consistent customer experience? And is it a good one? And if not, how can we help companies make it better? So all that kind of came together with my decision to start my own podcast, which is Frank Reactions on Customer Experience, and then to write the book, People Shock. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, 
I want to ask you, because you mentioned it a few times, your background is kind of varied and seemingly maybe has a path, but it doesn't. I think that's often the case. The, the, the more experience I get under my belt, I mean, when we started the podcast six years ago, I had no idea really what I wanted, but I started to uncover uh, what I felt was at the core of me. So was there ever a, a leading or a guiding light, do you feel like, or kind of how did you just work your way through and did you enjoy it? Well, you know, like any entrepreneurial journey, there are ups and downs. Overall, yes, I've enjoyed it. And um, the book process, I definitely enjoyed, particularly interviewing people. I love interviewing people and learning from others and what their experiences have been. And, you know, writing is one of those things that it's kind of hard, but once you're into it, it's actually kind of fun. And once you read what you've written and it's not bad, it's really quite satisfying. So... Overall, yeah, I would say that I enjoyed it. And and in terms of the guiding spark, I think has always been trying to, this sounds really corny, but trying to make the world a better place. And I think if businesses treat people better, and if people can have better experiences online and offline, it is making the world a better place. I have a question for you. This just came to me, and I've Mm -hmm. never asked it, 200-something episodes in. You know, I've interviewed, and you have as well, a lot of people, a lot of smart, successful people. And Mm -hmm. I'd say 90% of them at some point say that they want to do something greater than themselves. They want to help others. They want to leave the world a better place. They have a passion for this, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say it's it's a human, it's part of the human condition for most of us. Mm-hmm. That being the case, and I'm trying not to be pessimistic here, <laughs> why do organizations or businesses or just corporate America, why does it seem to be so not good? <laughs> like, I don't know how <laughs> to ask that a better way, but if everybody has this greater good in mind, why don't we have a greater system? That's a really great question. And I think it has a lot to do with what are the pressures on people, what are the incentives and reward systems? So if you look, for instance, at the corporate world, especially for publicly traded companies, they are rewarded for very short term thinking and short term behavior. And to make the world a better place takes long term, you, you know, you can make little incremental changes. But if you're getting rewarded on having the highest possible share price every quarter, that's not giving you the incentives to invest in creating a better workplace, in creating better quality products, in making sure your customers are happy. Because those things, even though they will, and, and I talk about this in the book, they lead to much higher profitability in the long run. It's not a short run game mm. and it takes investment. Is there a solution to that? Because, you know, so I recently read an article actually that was talking about how more companies are choosing to either not go public or to, once they are public, kind of buy it back and become private yep. again. Um, Delve has done that. I write about that in the book, actually. Oh, there you go. It, it, what do you think the solution, assuming we're not going to just overhaul everything and there's no public companies anymore, uh, how do we change that mentality and that, that, that goal of the short-term quarterly profit over everything else? Well, I'm hoping that eventually investors will start to place a value on the long term and on customer experience. And, and there's starting to be more talk about that in the investment world. 
there's starting to be some realization that hmm, maybe what we're doing isn't creating the right incentives. But it's tough because the environment in which our trading system operates, first of all, it's mostly automated. So how do you automate it so that it thinks long term? And also there's tremendous emotional drivers and people get whipped up into a frenzy. Like when something bad happens, everybody sells instead of holding on and thinking, hmm, you know, this is a good time to buy. People aren't rational. So, you know, I hope it'll happen, but I'm not sure if mm. it will. Yeah. No, I know. I, I I wonder about that all the time. And, you know, it's interesting because in your book, you talk about the path to profits when customers rule. So there is still that underlying theme of we need to make a profit. How do you kind of, I don't know, separate that from this also larger message of, but really it's to make the world better or to, to be of service or whatever it might be for you? Well, I'll tell you, the reason I put that in the subtitle is because I think it is important to communicate to that huge number of business owners and executives out there that it is profitable to invest in these things. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I worried that if I just focus on let's do good in the world, right. let's make the world a better place, that a lot of the people who need to hear this message aren't going to pick up the book and, and read it and think about it. So... I think it's it's legit. I think that what I'm recommending does lead to a more profitable business. But you have to talk about it because we are so conditioned to profits being the primary thing. It's almost like a Trojan horse. It's like once you yeah. get in the door with the, the profits word, the P word, then you can exactly. tell them about what really matters. Exactly. And, you know, I also hesitated because I do work with governments, with nonprofits, as well as with for-profit organizations. And, you know, I thought, well, okay, if I'm putting this profits in, is that cutting them out? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm hoping that it won't be, but I, I really felt it was important to get this message across to the corporate world. So I want, uh, let's see, I want to hear kind of the basis of the message, but one, one question I have for you to kick things off here. Um, I know you mentioned that customer satisfaction is actually going down, not mm. up, which... Yep. From my point of view, given given how customer centric, I mean the 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 for profit world, I guess any any industry has become, that blows my mind. So the the first thing I want to ask is, is it actually that companies are satisfying customers less, or is it just that customers are becoming unreasonable? Uh, it's a bit of both. Uh, I think companies, in fact, are trying harder. More of them are trying harder, but there's no question that customer expectations have increased. I'm not I'm not convinced that they're being unreasonable. I mean, yes, there are some who absolutely are, and I think there is more of a sense of entitlement now among customers. But quite apart from that, I think in the old days, in the pre-internet era, and particularly the pre-social media era, it was hard for you to find out about companies that were not treating customers well, because at best, you just hear from a few people you knew, whereas now you can do your research before you choose to deal with them. So it has a bigger impact. And also, it means that if people are treated badly, they can spread the word far and wide. So customers' expectations and their ability to choose alternatives have both increased. And I think that's where a lot of that is coming from. Companies are struggling to keep up with that continually rising expectation. 
Yeah. And, and I think it's tough. Like, so I travel all the time. And I'll tell you one industry that is just, and I try to be the, you know, the, the logical, calm uh, consumer. But man, the, 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 the flying industry, <laughs> the plane, you know, whatever you want to call them, yeah. aviation industry, they are, I can't even believe how bad they are. Yeah. You know? And I'm reminded of, I think it's Louis C.K. who says, uh, you know, he gives the whole skit about how can you complain about a delay when we're going to send you up in a metal tube at 500 miles an hour or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one. But but the thing is, though, they it's obviously deceitful. Like, let me give you an example. They will tell you that if you take off at 3, you'll land at 5, even though it's only an hour and 30-minute flight, <laughs> so that they yeah. build in 30 minutes of a delay. Yeah. And I just feel like, like, how does this still happen in these large industries where it's tough to to have an incumbent, you know, or, or to have a newcomer come in and take out the incumbent? Like, how do we change those? Any thoughts there? Because, man, I hate the traveling. Well, and, and you're quite right that any industry where it's hard for people to become competitors, that's going to be a challenge. And there's much less incentive when you've got essentially a monopoly or a near monopoly. People are kind of stuck with it. Mm. That said, I mean, there have been startups in the airline industry, um, you know, in, in Canada, for instance, WestJet, which started, well, now I guess about 20 years ago, but they started because the incumbent was providing really bad service to people and people were really upset and looking for an alternative. And they've done really well because they have focused on the customer as they've developed that organization. Now, is every one of their flights perfect? Absolutely not. But what strikes me when I fly that airline, and no, they're not paying me for this, um, <laughs> versus others is their staff smile. And you, that's so simple, mm. but it's amazing how often they don't. Um, and if there's a problem or a delay, they keep you informed. And, you know, so we all recognize that, there will be weather delays. There will be mechanical failures, and I'd rather have them caught while the plane's on the ground. Right. But at least keep your customers informed about what's going on and offer solutions to try and make sure they're not getting totally messed up. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a complicated industry. I try to keep straight on it, but it's just one. I couldn't wait to get your take on it because it's the <laughs> one I see so much. But, you know, to get to the broader, broader scheme of things, Let's dive into what do you recommend to, we'll start with companies, but then given how most listeners are individuals here, we'll try and move on to them. But, you know, what do they do? I mean, what do you do as a leader or a, an executive or to, you know, not change your culture too much, not not stray from who you are, but to, I don't even want to say appease the customer. What What do you recommend? Well, I recommend that, first of all, you start to understand your customers better, because I think where a lot of the problems come in is companies make assumptions about what customers are thinking and what they want, and often those assumptions are wrong. So I really would say the first part is just doing more, investing more in market research. Get out there and watch your customers do what I call a customer safari. Go and watch your customers in the wild and see how they behave. And what is affecting them and how is it affecting them, as well as talking to them individually and, and getting detailed feedback from them. You know, a lot of companies are obsessed with the net promoter score in the customer service industry. 
which basically asks one question, which is, would you recommend us to a friend? And, you know, it's great to use that, I guess, as um, a marker for where you are, but it doesn't give you the insight about how do you get better? Why are they making the decision they are? And you need to really research to understand that. Then I think, you know, you said without changing the culture, well, typically you will have to change the culture somewhat. I'm not saying change your values. Mm, and that's often, what I meant, I think, better, better, better yeah. way of putting it, yep. Well, and often I think companies have just kind of evolved and not really thought back to what are our values. So that's why, you know, when I talk about the promise, that's where you start is what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we trying to make the world a better place or whatever? And and it's funny because you can do that even with totally uninspirational businesses. Um, there's a company called Jankoa Janitorial Services now, you know, as the owner put it to me, nobody grows up thinking they want to be a janitor. But um, what they realized their inspiration ultimately came from trying to help their employees who were immigrants, who had little education, little opportunity, trying to help them have dreams and achieve those dreams. So whether it was getting education, whether it was saving for a home, their focus then became on improving things for their staff the staff became happier, started developing much better, providing much better service to the customers. So start with that promise. Um, then once you've got that, that gives you your foundation. It gives you your guidance so that when you have to make decisions going forward about how to do things, you've got that as your frame of reference. That's sort of the lens you look through to say, hmm, should we be doing this or shouldn't we? Is it consistent with what we're promising? Is it consistent with what we're trying to achieve? Then you get into the people side. And, you know, the people, which is the second P, as I put it, um, is not just your staff, although they are a huge and, and in some ways the most important component of that, because unhappy staff are not going to lead to happy customers, no matter what you do. Um, so you've got to get the staff side right. But you also have to have good relationships, not just with customers and prospects on the outside, but also with people like your suppliers, because if you're not on good terms with them and they have a shortfall, they're not going to give you priority. Um, so you need good relationships there. You need good relationships with your distributors or franchisees if you've got them, because they're your public face. Um, so uh, even your lenders, like there are a whole bunch of human relationships that need to be focused on to to make this all work. So that's so we got the promise and the people. And then the third one, and this is where I think so many organizations run into problem is process. And if anything, even if they look at their processes, because in most companies, processes just kind of evolve, and no one ever stops to think, does this still make sense? Uh, in fact, one of my favorite stories was uh, a manufacturing company. And they were complaining that they on a particular part that they had to produce for a client, they had to punch a hole into it. And it was a pain to have to punch this hole. But, you know, they've been doing that for years, and they continued. And then in speaking to the client, the client said, gee, it would be so much nicer if they didn't punch this darn hole in it. Hmm. Well, it turned out the hole was something from 10 years earlier to solve a specific problem at that time. And no one had ever reexamined it. Why are we doing this? So the processes need to be looked at regularly, but most importantly, they need to be looked at 
from a customer perspective. Don't start by saying, how can we make things more efficient for us? Start by saying, how can we make things work better from the customer's perspective? Then how does that translate internally? And what you'll find is almost always making things better for the customer will in fact make things better internally as well, because it gives you guidance and motivation for how to streamline and how to organize better. So when you kind of came up with this when you were writing this as you've been developing this message it's is it that are you looking at it from the perspective of you know businesses exist to serve a customer which i i can't think of any instance in which that's not true at least that's why they're started so let's focus on how we be better for the customer and these are the three ways to go through it is that kind of a summation of it or um i guess so i mean I felt I I had a ton of material and this seemed to me to be a way that's digestible. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton, obviously, under each of those points. It's not it's not as simple as it sounds. But but using that as the frame of reference, I think, helps organize your thought process. Right. And tackle the problem. So is this for, like, walk me through, do you have a, maybe a case study of the way this kind of plays out? Because I'm interested in it. And I, I do, uh, many listeners know, you know, I, I consult for Franklin Covey and we talk about very much, we talk about this in, in a number of different ways, leadership and trust and uh, all these great things. And there's a lot behind, you know, it used to be very customer centric and, and organizations were saying, we don't care, just focus on the customer. And that's kind of one part here. But there's also been this shift back to let's focus on our people who will then focus on the customer. And so there's a lot going on. I think it's a very uh, timely subject. But I, again, I just want to get back to is there is there a case study that can help us understand this process a little more? Well, the book is full of case studies. <laughs> yeah. And and I tried really hard to get case studies in there that weren't just the big ones. I mean, we've all heard about Zappos. Right. Um, and in case anyone in your audience hasn't, Zappos selling shoes online. I mean, first of all, who would have thought people would buy shoes online? Um, and they were one of the first to start selling them. But they created their whole f- culture around making sure that the customer is satisfied and served well. And... At the same time, they recognized that essential to doing that was going to be making sure that their staff were satisfied as well and inspired. So, you know, that that is a great example. So what did they do? Well, they started by looking at what is the customer experience of buying shoes? What are the pain points? What will be the pain points if we try and do this online and how can we mitigate them? So, for instance, fast free returns at no charge to the customer. Do you know like, how they the, did that? Do you know how, how they conducted the customer research, which is in the, is this in the promise portion? Um, that Well, it depends. I mean, the customer research pro- promise and process, I think it's in both. Okay. And, you know, I have to admit, I have not read the full book. So okay. yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read clips, but I haven't read the whole thing. Sure. So no, I don't know. <laughs> I know there's tons of case studies. How could you know that in-depth on every one? I guess on a more general scale, let's go into that. Because I'm trying to make it, you know, from a high level, uh, I I think this is where I think your your book differentiates itself. And I I don't that's why I don't want to skim too much. But we don't have a ton of time is this stuff. Some of it's intuitive, but getting down to it, there's more there. And I want to understand that. So 
What is mm-hmm. a way, let's talk about the, this first part, really understanding your customers, the customer safari, if you will, as you mentioned. How do we do that? Well, it depends on the type of organization, but there are a few things that I would recommend. First of all, even when it's just a concept, is getting out there and talking to people who are like the ones you want to have as customers. So um, that in itself will give you a lot of information. If you've already got customers, one of the things that I recommend is that the senior executive every week should be calling one or two customers and finding out what's going on in their world and is what we're offering still meeting your needs ideally, and if not, how can we make it better? So doing that kind of research. Um, Doing, of course, there's all kinds of survey research and stuff, which can be helpful, although we're sort of reaching a point where people are almost surveyed out. But I do still recommend having quick little surveys at the end of interactions, but make it super quick, super fast but always leave room for open-ended answers so that if people tell you they're not happy about something, they have an opportunity to tell you why. And then I think it's, so, so it's really a question of doing the research about what's going on with the consumers and doing the research internally. So one of the things that drives me crazy is so many organizations, they don't listen to their frontline staff. So, you know, I had a situation where I take my car into a dealership and they have a shuttle service so they can bring you back to your office and then pick you up later. And I've noticed over the last couple of years that the delays are longer and it's harder to get the shuttle and the whole process kind of getting clogged. And the shuttle driver that I had last time was fairly new there. He had been injured in the oil patch, so he could no longer do the physical work. So he was doing this driving. And he said, you know, there are so many things that he could see that would make this process work so much faster. But he said, nobody wants to hear from us. We shuttle drivers are the lowest of the low. You know, nobody cares what we think. Mm. And he had some great ideas about how they could make this process much more efficient. And he said, instead, they're just hiring more and more people, but they can't keep up. And if they organized it better, they wouldn't need to hire as many people. So a lot of it is also listening to the front lines. The people who are closest to where things happen will give you the best information about what's really going on. Again, the CEOs, the C-level executives, they know it. I mean, when I talk to companies or, you know, I go in and do facilitations, I say, you know, look, if I were to ask the CEO, if he were to be in the room and he were to ask, you know, this question, he would want you to look at it from the greater perspective. He would want Mm -hmm. you to start looking at your job from this, you know, the way it impacts the company. But the larger you get and the more bureaucracy and the more layers, it just gets stripped. And I think that's so much of what's happening in our companies is that people just lose their connection to what the point of it is. And it's not their fault, right? It's definitely, Mm -hmm. I don't think oftentimes, not always, but it's the employee's fault. And so in this case, it's the same thing. The executive knows they should be able to hear that, but they just can't. And I don't know if any book or message is going to get them out of the ivory tower. Maybe I'm, maybe not, maybe not. I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting because there are shows like Undercover Boss, which are designed to do exactly that, right? And it was interesting. um, 
Hudson Books, which uh, I would love to get this book into. It's the airport bookstores. Mm -hmm. And their CEO did an undercover boss episode. And he wrote an article in LinkedIn about it afterwards, about why he had done it and what he had learned from it. And he was starting to feel that sense of isolation. And he thought, this is a great opportunity to find out what's really going on on the front lines. But he said in there, but I, you know, I couldn't have done this without the show. And I'm thinking, of course you could. Right. Like, you don't need a television show for you to put on a wig and go hang out in a store for a while and see what's going on. You know, they can do it. But also they can just create an environment that makes people comfortable telling them the truth and makes people at lower levels have access to them. So, and you know, that means though making it a priority mm -hmm. and that's hard and we're all time pressed and no doubt the CEOs are among the most time pressed of all. So it's a question of where do you set your priorities? I guess it goes back to what we were talking about is, you know, looking at the short term quarterly profits versus how do we create sustainability, in which case yeah. it would involve all layers of the organization and being able to see that. And, you know, the thing, look, if I've learned anything from interviewing people in all levels and all that stuff, it's I mean, look, they're people, too. You know what I mean? The executives, <laughs> they're just. There's just people. I think when you're, well, at least for me, when I was 21 or 24 or whatever, I thought, oh my gosh, they're these superheroes. And then you meet them yeah. and you go, I mean, they work hard, but um, they, they have the same hangups as we do. Oh, for sure. And it's true. I remember uh, actually my very early in my career, I worked uh, in the Canadian Parliament as an intern. And I remember, you know, at first being so awestruck meeting the prime minister and these cabinet ministers and stuff. And very quickly you learn, oh, yeah, <laughs> they're very human people. Yes. <laughs> and yes. that mystique is gone. <laughs> it is. I know, which is good, I think. You yeah, know, th th there's something you talk about, which is, you know, younger employees and their their loyalty, perhaps not fall, not not uh, being to the employer as much anymore and how they want things to change. What do you recommend for the leaders who are trying to, okay, I'm on the process part of the three P's. I'm trying to deliver great customer experiences um, externally as well as change the people or, or help the people inside my organization. How do you help them deal with, um, you know, perhaps the, the younger generation, we'll call them millennials, whatever you want, who, mm -hmm. and I am one, so I'm going to stick up for them, who rightfully <laughs> do, don't feel like they need to extend loyalty because loyalty hasn't been given to them or to their parents. Exactly. I think a lot of them have seen their parents lose their jobs after being loyal. There you go. Yeah. Um, I think to connect with that generation and inspire that generation, you really need to listen to them. You need to engage them in the process, make them feel that their opinions matter and, and be a little less hierarchical. Um, the lower you can, or or the fewer layers of bureaucracy you have, the better. And even just setting up, if it's a large organization, even just setting up opportunities for people who are younger to meet with people who are more senior in the organization and chat with them. Um, Peter Asito, who's uh, the head of Tangerine Bank, um, he regularly has lunch in the staff lunchroom and will go out of his way to sit at a different table each time and meet employees he's never met before. And because he does that and it makes it a casual thing, employees get to the point where they feel they can talk to him. 
and they can tell them if there's an issue. So making yourself human and accessible. And again, I know it's hard because you're really busy. But if you want to get that group engaged, and if you really, if you do listen to them, and do try to incorporate some of their ideas, you'll get incredible loyalty. Because they want to change the world, they want to make things better, whether it's for themselves, or the world at large, if you can find a way to get them involved and feeling that they have a hope of doing that, they, they will care. I really think uh, you hit the nail on the head on that. And and I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I, I've got experience in it for a number of reasons. And I think that, and people are starting to realize it. I mean, the younger folks coming in, which are now becoming the majority, um, I think the mindset is there if they're listen to a little bit. It doesn't mean coddled. It just means like right. no long, like I really struggle in these hierarchical bureaucratic, uh, you know, follow the leader. I, I just think it's, and people are so buttoned up and they watch every word and I don't get it. It's not human. <laughs> Why did we create these organizations filled with humans that don't act like humans? And I just, I've never understood it. And, Me neither. You know, and, and so I think you did hit the nail on the head. It's like, let's have these conversations. Let's drop the curtain a little bit. Um, yeah. And so I really enjoyed that. The The last thing, and I know you got to run here in a minute, but I wanted to touch on the digital marketing kind of social media aspect, because I know that's a, a big part of your background and your expertise. Yes. What do people do there? Because, well, first of all, I really don't like social media. It's just, uh, <laughs> but but my producer loves it. So he handles it and it's great. I understand the benefits. I just don't, I don't know, whatever. It's not my thing. Um, <laughs> how do you recommend people, even companies even approach it? What What should we be doing here? Uh, you know, that's, that makes sense because I don't think it's, oh, listen to every customer and dedicate all these resources. <laughs> At least that's my take. What do you think? Well, I think part of social media, you know, whether you like it or not, it's there. And uh, there are certain types of social media I'm not keen on. I must admit, I don't particularly like Twitter, and I kind of hoped that it wouldn't survive, but mm -hmm. it has, so I've learned to use it. Um, but I think that you need to recognize that it is there, and you need to be listening at a minimum. So even in a small company, you can set a Google alert or a notification alerts in each of the social media platforms so that your phone gets a little bing every time somebody mentions you, so that you're on top of it, you're aware of what they're saying, and you can join in the conversation. It is better if you can be proactive, at least in the sorts of communities where they're likely to be talking about whatever it is you sell or your type of category. Because if you're in there in a proactive kind of way, you can be building relationships and building credibility, so that if something does go wrong later, you've got defenders in there. It's not just you against the world. Mm -hmm. But even if you have made a mistake, or even if you haven't made a mistake, but somebody's blasting you publicly and saying that you have, you need to get on it quickly. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that companies make is by not monitoring, they wait until something's become a huge problem before they respond. And that's just foolish. So you need to get in there quickly, acknowledge you've heard them, acknowledge that you don't have to say, I screwed up. You do have to say, I'm really concerned that you've had this experience. Can we talk offline and, and get to the bottom of it and see how we can make things right for you? So you're not saying that it was our fault, but you are saying, I recognize that you've got an issue. 
let's see how we can deal with it. And you're encouraging them to discuss it offline. So let's get this debate out of the public eye. Um, the mistake that I see some companies doing with that is they insist that you do it in their particular format. And one of the most foolish ones is somebody will send a tweet and then the company will say, please call us. Well, you know, the reason they were tweeting in the first place is because they didn't want to spend 20 minutes on hold. And right. Right. So, so give people options about how to do that conversation. If they continue after that to blast you online, you know, answer politely a couple of times. And after that, just say, you know, I'm really sorry that we don't seem to be able to make you satisfied with this, but it doesn't seem like there's much point continuing this discussion. Uh, if you ever want to talk privately, please do, and then just let it go. And what will happen is you will have demonstrated to anyone who was following that conversation that you're being calm and rational and that you're offering to help. And so they're going to look bad and ultimately people will get bored with it and that it'll get buried. Yeah, no, it's one of those, I don't know, it's a tough place to be. I'm glad I don't have to do it yet. Maybe <laughs> one day somebody will force me to do a lot of social media, but the moment. Um, so one last question I want to leave our listeners with. Uh, any, what, what would you say, hey, guys, if you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, a leader of a team, uh, here's the one thing you should do or start thinking about to transform that team or that person or that company that you lead? Anything at all? As a team leader, I would say the one thing that you need to do is start meeting with your group and across groups, most importantly within an organization, across groups. You've got to break down silos. So get people together from all levels of the organization and all departments of the organization and start having meetings together to discuss what's going on and how things can be made better. I love it. Well, Tema, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you got to run. Uh, the book is People Shock, The Path to Profits When Customers Rule. Uh, where else can people find you? Where are you at? Where are you writing? Where are you hanging out? Uh, well, I hang out all kinds of places, but mm. my my own website is frankreactions.com, and they can access the Frank Reactions podcast there where I interview people about these issues as well. Uh, they can also find that, of course, on iTunes or wherever else. Mm. And uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, um, just and on Twitter at Tema Frank. On Facebook, there's the Frank Reactions page. So I try to make myself pretty available. And if honestly, if anyone wants to discuss anything with me directly, my email is Tema T E Amazon Marketing A at FrankReactions.com. All right, that sounds great. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, we will be in touch soon when the episode airs. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. I, I wish I did have longer to keep going because <laughs> you ask good questions. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> have a great one. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tema Frank. Her book, People Shock, The Path to Profits, When Customers Rule, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. But if you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All you have to do is click on the link, shop like you normally would, and you'll be supporting the show at no cost to you. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher, Leave a review, comment, and rating over there. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, what are you waiting for? Hit the subscribe button. 
only takes about three seconds. As Chris mentioned at the top of the show, we do have a somewhat important announcement. We are changing the frequency of the show to once every two weeks or about two times a month. We're really doing this so that we can focus more on the show, think about what we want to do here in the near future as we're approaching, I believe, the six-year mark in December, which is just kind of nuts. So if you have any feedback on this change, please feel free to email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. That's it for this week. Please stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast, and we'll see you all next week. Next week.